Welcome to Season 3, Episode 31 of the Indotechno Podcast. I'm Alan Hallowell, Venture Partner at Leading Early Stage Indonesian VC, AC Ventures, and founder of startup consultancy Gizmo Advisors. Now, in the startup world, pivoting is almost a compulsory part of a founder's journey. Successful pivoting, however, requires considerable planning and execution. And my time working with entrepreneurs has involved healthy portions of such transition. One of the very first entrepreneurs that I met in Indonesia's startup scene only a year prior founded what is best described as a payments aggregator. In the intervening five years, I watched this founder experiment aggressively and eventually pivot into a new area of fintech, which is called open banking. We are very pleased finally to have Jacob Rost, founder and CEO of IOConnect, join us today to discuss the path over the several years that I've known him that has led the company to a leadership position in this open banking space. Thanks for joining us today, Jacob. Hi, Alan, great to be here. Great. Before embarking on a discussion of what I view to have been an incredible tale of experimentation and pivoting that has led to IOConnect's current success, I was keen to get a better sense of your underpinning as a founder. Your CV is frankly one of the most eclectic I've seen in a while. You have crewed mega yachts. You have worked at some of Germany's largest corporates, such as T-Mobile and Siemens. You've done consulting. You've done banking. Tell us about the one or two professional experiences that have best contributed to your current toolkit as a founder. Yeah, I mean, it feels a couple of different lives actually compressed into the last 15 years or so. I think I've always been very excited about new things. Before I knew what I wanted to do, I was like, the best way to tell is just explore different industries. So you're right. I've been a sailor at one time across the Atlantic Ocean on a professionally crewed sailing yacht. I was very eager to explore new geographies and countries. And then during my studies very early on, realized that what's really interesting for me is to understand how companies work, how decisions are made. And I realized I really need to get into the decision making departments, which is typically corporate finance, corporate development, strategy, and so on. So. That's where like early on I studied economics and business. So early on, I decided those are the kind of things that are interesting for me. And that has then led to continue my early career in investment banking on the M&A side for JP Morgan and then later for Boston Consulting. And I think that's where I really got to know the financial industry as a whole. I did a lot of projects with leading banks across Europe during my time there. I understood some of the things that work, but also a lot of the things that are not fully up there and then continued basically the process in Indonesia a couple of years later. Wow, you have very neatly threaded what at first blush looks like a series of dissimilar and disconnected experiences into quite a cohesive evolution of your work life. Now, you're also part of the quote-unquote Lazada Mafia. You must have dozens of stories from your three years there alone. What are the most poignant memories that you carry from your time there? Yeah, Lazada Mafia is an interesting concept. I think it's more loose, like the connection of dots and relationships rather than an organized setup like the Mafia. But you're right. This was a very important phase of my life, especially I just moved to Indonesia 
during a time. And it got me a chance to understand the market really well. I later had a regional role in Asada, so I got to see the region. I was on the ground in all the other countries in Southeast Asia. And you really set up with a lot of responsibility and a lot of pressure and high expectations, but also a lot of freedom to get there. So I was director for Lazada Indonesia, focusing on marketplace. So I was basically responsible for opening up the platform to third-party sellers, onboarding merchants, educating them about e-commerce. So stuff that is super normal nowadays. Back then, it was a radical concept in this part of the world and really sought hypercross in the early days. So basically starting with a team of two, scaling all the way to 400 people within the first eight months of me being there. It was an extremely busy time in many regards, probably more busy during my VCG days, but also an extremely high learning curve and a very rewarding time because you see results immediately. It's like you try five different things every single day, four don't work, one works. So you scale that up and next day you try other things. And as I said, you have a lot of freedom and a lot of resources to do. So in the best sense of way, it's learning with other people's money. And that's, I think, the benefit of joining an early stage company, regardless of the industry. And that has then fully convinced me to actually have enough confidence and enough passion to start something fully on my own later down the road. You had another very interesting characterization of the Lazada approach and experience. All the accounts that I've heard of to date seem to involve the image of drinking from a fire hydrant and what you just described seems to be something quite similar. Now, let's move on to what was then called IOPOP when I first met you in the early years and has since morphed into what we have rebranded as IOConnect. Where did the original idea come from? Yeah, so this was still a very early part of the ecosystem. So we're talking about late 2015, early 2016. It's actually not too long ago, but it feels like lifetimes in, in a sense of where the market is today and how everything has evolved. So being with Lazada has really helped me understand the market, but also the gaps that are in the market, especially on the financial inclusion side of things. Payments was always a gap for us when we operated e-commerce in the early days. So I was pretty clear that fintech is the next new big frontier. And we actually started approaching the business as being consumers ourselves. So those were the days where in India, Paytm just launched. There wasn't any e-wallet around in Indonesia at this time when we started. So we actually said we want to make it easier for consumers to do financial transaction online. And especially we are in mobile environment. And the biggest basic financial use case in Indonesia is still bill payments. At the other day, that's something that you have to do 10 to 15 times every single month across 250 million people, whether that's phone recharges, water, gas, electricity payments, tax, whether that's insurance, loan repayments, card repayments. So really think about anything that people need to do on a regular recurring basis. So this is the experience that we wanted to bring online. And we were actually the first ones in Indonesia doing this. Having done this actually opened up a couple of additional insights to us. And the first one was that there is really no infrastructure layer below that. So while we came from a consumer angle, we realized we had to build all those integrations, all those pipes, the entire infrastructure ourselves. Very different than, for instance, a market like India, you have guys like Buildest that are serving this case, especially for utility payments and so on. So there was no Buildest in Indonesia. So we quickly realized that this is the bigger opportunity. And then the second thing happened is where as other highly funded silicons and unicorns in the e-commerce and payment space found out about what we're building, 
they actually came to us and approached us and said, what you guys are doing in the space is very interesting. That's a use case that we want to have on our platform, but it's not necessarily something that we want to build ourselves because it's not our core business, takes a long time. It's a very low margin product. So we realized there's actually a bigger business that can be built on focusing on the infrastructure side of things and essentially building the pipes. And that's how we became, without even knowing, one of the largest API platforms in the country. So this was really the use case that we started out. It's a bit of a hidden use case, but it's a, nevertheless a very big use case. And that led us then to evolve the company from there to where it is today. Understood. There's been clearly an evolution at play here. I wanted to maybe flip the coin over and ask you, would you say that product market fit proved elusive in the early years? And was it that elusiveness that maybe led us to this now more successful model that IOConnect is? Yeah, I think product market fit is one of the hardest things to achieve for any business starting out, especially in an ecosystem like Indonesia or South Asia. It's not a typical playbook whereby Series A, you have your product market fit. In fact, you could argue that some of the unicorns today are still searching for their product market fit in its own right. So I think there's always a learning curve attached. When you start out, you have a hypothesis and more often than not, that hypothesis gets adjusted a lot the way. And that's certainly what happened to us. But having said that, even though the perception or the story of IOConnect changed over time, I think under the hood, like the core infrastructure that we were building actually has proven to be a very consistent story. So it was always an API business from day one. It was under the surface, always an infrastructure business from day one. And eventually we found, I think, the space that is even more exciting for us, also from a founding team perspective. Both of my two co-founders come from a product and tech perspective. So I would like to say we like to be in the engine room. We like to be three levels deep plugging and building connections and pipes and bringing different stakeholders of the ecosystem together. That was always part of the business or the biggest part of the business from day one. But I think on the surface, the perception has changed a bit on the actual focus at the time. Understood. Now, you just mentioned your co-founders. How did this set of transitions impact your leadership team? Yeah, I'm very happy to say that the core team is still the same from what it was almost seven years ago when we set out. Sherak Karabilani is one of our co-founders who comes from a product perspective. He's Indonesian, so he knows the market really well. He spent some time in India. He saw the ecosystem shaping up there, but he's basically very passionate about bringing the ecosystem forward and what we're building. And then Adi Vora is our CTO from day one, was part of the founding team. So even though the business has evolved and matured over time, I think the consistency in the team has really helped us to go through those different stages, the low points and the high points. And I'm excited to say that we feel still like it's day one. So there's a long way to go for us from here on. And we have never been closer as a founding team. And I think this is also an essential success factor that contributed to where we are today. Clearly very important to have that leadership team as cohesive as it has been during these periods of pivoting and transition. Now, you've described the current incarnation of IOConnect as, quote, Southeast Asia's leading open finance platform, unquote. What do we mean by this? Yeah, admittedly, it's open finance is a very wide field, Southeast Asia. I think it sets a little bit the expectation on the vision that we're going after. We're looking at the region as a whole. 
we're looking at beyond what's open banking, we're looking at open finance as an even broader umbrella. But I think it's also important to say there's a journey and we need to start somewhere. So as of today, our focus is 100% on Indonesia. That is the biggest country in Southeast Asia. It has the majority of the population. It's the most advanced from a tech ecosystem perspective. It has the most unicorns. It has the most funding and has the most noise. I think this is definitely where we want to prove ourselves and we want to basically reach a certain scale. But having said that, we have a long way to go and there's a lot of ideas that we have. So yeah, aspirations are pretty clear that we feel every part of the world has very large players in that ecosystem. And our aspiration is to be one of the leading players over here as well. Thanks for that. So Jacob, given that characterization, who needs to cooperate for IOConnect open banking to really succeed in Indonesia? Does the bank regulator need to adopt our standards? Do the big banks need to work with our solution? The concept of open banking sounds as though we're talking about almost standards and a consistency between points A and B. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a great question. And one that we've been thinking very long and hard about. Training new infrastructure to a market like Indonesia is never easy. There's a journey attached to it. And as you rightfully said, so a lot of different stakeholders in that value chain need to come together and collaboratively work together. Now, as our name says, IOConnect, we see ourselves as playing a central role in bringing the stakeholders together. It's really not just about connecting from a technical standpoint in the terms of like APIs and systems talking to each other, but even in a form of bringing people together, bringing an underlying understanding of what the market needs and where the market should be heading, which is also something that we're spending a lot of time doing in educating the market. Now, going a bit more into detail with your question, so you have certainly the banking providers. So the journey starts there, looking at them from a supply side perspective. I think in the last 12 months, we've come a very long way. The term open banking being a vague concept or not even there in the first place, something like 80, 20 months ago to now everyone has heard about it. There's a certain amount of buzz around it. People are looking for education. They want to understand what it entails and so on. So I think we've come a long way on the banking side. Also, banks are starting to understand that it's not a scary concept of potentially opening up. There's a lot of opportunities and potential monetization attached to that, that they didn't initially envision as part of their strategy. Now, I think the next stakeholder is the consumer-facing platforms. And here we also see that coming from the days where you had to do everything yourself. You had to acquire a company in order to get access to a certain license or to a certain technology stack, which would have taken you years and millions to build yourself. Now having the availability of APIs and infrastructure in place opens up a whole new range of possibilities. The make versus buy decision more often than not clearly favors the buy decision. So more often than not, companies are now starting to realize that they don't have to build everything internally, that they don't need to hire big teams. And I think that's also very aligned with the general notion of where the markets are today. Companies at various scales need to focus more on their core business and their competitive landscape in that core business versus having to build adjacent services from scratch themselves. So I think on the consumer-facing platforms, we see a lot of interest. Also go-to-market, obviously, is very important. So that accelerates your whole product pipeline. The last piece of the journey is then the consumer itself. So I think that's where we are today, where a lot of education needs to happen on the consumer that 
those new ways of using embedded financial services, sharing your data with your content and so on is a legit way, a more easier and streamlined way of doing business, of getting access to financial services that you weren't able to access before or getting them at a cheaper price and so on. And that's particularly a part of the stakeholder ecosystem that I'm very excited to see as we move into 23 and beyond. And then last and not least, you have the infrastructure builders like us, basically as IO Connect, trying to bring all of this together, trying to basically orchestrate all of the different stakeholders, putting together the right tech stack and a common language for all of them to seamlessly interact with each other. Understood. Thanks for that. Let's peel the onion back a bit more on this open banking concept. I think it might be useful to come up with a tangible example because it still seems quite conceptual in nature. Let's specifically talk about how our solution is actually applied in the real world. We talk about offering quote unquote embedded finance and data solutions to help companies launch banking and payment services in a matter of weeks. Can you give us a real life example of a customer successfully leveraging IOConnect in this way? Yeah, I give you an example, which is probably the use case that we started out with to come back to our roots. Utility payments is arguably the biggest financial use case in Indonesia. Unlike lending and savings and all of the things that might come later, everyone has to pay bills on a regular basis. That's why we love the concept and the use case to start out with. Now, what we really realized very early in our journey is that when we tried to do it ourselves with the consumer-facing platform, we realized Indonesia is too big and too different as a market in a way that you have so many different religions, different languages, different islands, and then all those things. So no one can do everything themselves. No bank has succeeded to cover 100% of Indonesia, even with decades of experience. None of the existing consumer-facing unicorns in tech have captured the entire market. So there will probably never be one company that can serve all of Indonesia. And that's where you need a lot of players, like on the consumer-facing side, tackling the last miles. And they come with different value propositions. Some focus really well on the Muslim population. Some focus very well on the urban populations. Some focus very well on farmers, as we've seen more use cases. Some focus on generation set, some on millennials. So collectively, that's how you capture a lot of the market. But then you need access to those financial solutions and embedded services. And that's where you need access to the right infrastructure stack and APIs that help you get there. And that's exactly what we've been doing on the utility side. This is where today, if you go to an e-wallet, if you go to any other consumer-facing platform, if you go offline to an agent, if you go to an, a convenience store in Indonesia, and you do transactions, there's a high chance that those transactions go through our pipes without the consumer ever knowing about it. It never says it's like provided by IO Connect or something. It's completely embedded into the ecosystem of our clients. And this is now something we replicate across all the other use cases as well. I'll give you another example of something that we've been working for the last two and a half years, and that's a direct debit. Now, direct debit is a use case that exists in almost every market around the world. It's been successfully done in Europe, I think, since the 80s. Indonesia didn't have a direct debit. So what that means is that any recurring payment had to be triggered from a consumer proactively every single month, had to be reminded. So if you're a lending company and you need to collect 
recurring payments from your users every single month or an insurance business and so on, you more or less had to just hope that the customer would remember that payment and pay you. Now, the next best thing in place, which is what Spotify's and the Netflix's use is credit card payments, right? For recurring payments. Credit card penetration in Indonesia is 3%. So that's not a good rail to have recurring payments as well. So that's where we came up with building the first direct debit API in Indonesia. And that took, as I said, more than 24 months to get it off the ground. But finally, we're there and we're excited to see where this goes. But it always goes back to the same pattern, building something that the ecosystem really needs, but that takes time and is hard to do. So it's not a lot of companies that I see have the patience and the grit to go through those long journeys. But for us, that then becoming more exciting than any other use case. Thanks for that. Now, basic question, how does IO Connect make money? In other words, what is our business model? Yeah, it's very simple. We like usage-based business models. It basically aligns incentives and that looks very different on the stack. So obviously for some of our payment APIs, you can think about it as like an MDR. For the data APIs, it's more a paper ping. But I think the most important thing is that we can ensure to our clients that whatever economics they share with us is still a multiple cheaper than them having to build the tech themselves and more importantly, operating it. So especially when it comes to API models, there's I think a misconception in the market that I just need to build APIs and I just need to integrate with certain players and then it's hands off, it's computers talking to computers. In the best case scenario, that's how it should be. But I think the reality is that you always need to operate those systems. You need to maintain them. You need to upgrade them. You need to make sure they are regulatory compliant and so on. All of this needs highly trained, specialized people that you would have to add to your team in order to operate certain financial services or use cases that you want to embed on your platform. And that's where we learned very early in our journey that there's a real need for an infrastructure provider to shoulder those upfront costs, but then collectively be able to offer those services cheaper to all of their clients. Understood. Now, coming back briefly to the concept of the pivot, in the journey from payments aggregation to open finance, what did you have to change most dramatically? Was it the company's key architecture? the basic business model, constituents, major customers, or was it something else? Yeah, so the interesting thing is we don't look at it as a pivot. We look at it as an evolution. So coming back to we've always been able to build and operate financial APIs, connecting different stakeholders in the ecosystem. And in a sense, starting on the utility side is probably the best learning ground that you can have. Highly scattered, fragmented landscape, there's thousands of players, water stations, there's more than 400 in Indonesia in very random geography. So collecting all of this together, making sure you have the tech stack to run and operate that. You're dealing with real money, you're dealing with consumer data, you're dealing with big clients on both sides of the API that are very stringent. This has really helped us to then evolve into additional financial APIs. That's really how we look at it. So from a core perspective, we've just added layers to what we've been doing anyway. But if you want to use the term pivot, I think the biggest pivot was more on the perception side of things, right? So it's more like on how the market has seen us. We were known for something A and now it's A plus B plus C, but the fundamental business is still there. It's still our core. It's still what we're good at. It's still tech and infrastructure and the learnings and the relationships that we can leverage for any additional solution that we're now launching. And I think this is why over the last three years, where we really embraced 
the move into open finance, we were able to move very quickly because we didn't have to build anything new or reinvent anything on the core tech stack. It's just that we had to put a couple of layers around what was already working for us. But then again, the market perception was probably the biggest change for us. And we're happy that we're known for what we do today. Yeah, I can now see words such as evolution and extension as possibly being better terms in characterizing the company's transition. Now, at the beginning of this year, IOConnect announced that it had raised 15 million US dollars in a B round. The most fascinating elements of this news piece, in my mind, is that you brought on world-famous New York-based hedge fund and one that also invests in private tech firms, Tiger Global. As a firm that I know more for its multi-hundred million dollar investments in large private and publicly listed tech firms, this, I assume, was one of their very first early stage Indonesian investments. How did this all come to happen? Yeah, you're right. We raised our Series B earlier this year. I think collectively we've raised close to 30 million this year, even announced a recent fundraising round, I think it's last week. I think we are extremely privileged that we have strong supporters on our cap table, not just Tiger, but also we have the two largest banks in Indonesia, Mandiri and BRI. We have local VCs like AC Ventures. We have regional strong investors like SIG, strategic investors like PayU. So I think different investors tick different profiles, but with Tiger, we definitely are increasingly on the map in the US. And I think it's great to see that more US capital is flowing into Southeast Asia, finally, and the ecosystem is mature enough. Our discussions with Tiger were very straightforward in the sense that they know the space really well. They've seen this kind of model scale to very sizable businesses in different parts of the world. And they are also getting more interesting about the region in itself. When we started discussions with them, it started off very well and then basically continued from there. I was admittedly also surprised on lower check size, but I think they've proven to be able to continue to support companies in their journey and double down. And I think if they really like something and it's interesting and they understand the model and, you know, the competitive advantages and entry barriers, all of this has helped essentially for them to make up the thesis and ultimately their decision which makes us extremely happy. I can understand that. Now, another question. Who is our competition today, Jacob? So if you look at open banking, open finance, there's a handful of players in the market. I'm actually surprised that it's only a handful because there's so much things to be built and such a big vision ahead of like where we need to collectively bring the ecosystem that I don't feel there's enough companies going into it and doing it today. So we're still very early in the journey and a lot of work has to be done. And I think all the players in the space are just working on educating the market at the current stage. It's right, really building powerful solutions that are here to stay for the next couple of decades, powering financial inclusion, embedded financial services, and so on. I think it's still very early in the days from a competitive landscape perspective. Having said that, if you look at the current players today, and I mean, it's a small ecosystem, we talk and we know each other, different companies do very different things. So while we are mentally all put into the open banking bucket, if you look at the actual solutions, everyone has a focus on a different geography or a focus on different APIs. And it's a vast space, right? It entails data APIs, payment APIs, banking APIs, and everyone is working at what I feel a very different piece of the ecosystem and a very important piece of the ecosystem. So 
I don't think one player can do it all. It's not necessarily a market also where you have a winner takes all. I think there's a lot of things to be built. And the more builders we have in the space, I think the bigger the market will grow and the more convenience there is for consumers and for client-facing companies to use those stacks. Understood. So Jacob, what are our business goals for 2023, whether expressed in revenues, customer count, new features and functions, et cetera? I'm very excited about 23. I feel 22 for us was about planting the seeds. So there's a lot of solutions that we've been working on that haven't even seen the light of day yet. And we are extremely excited to see them coming to fruition in 23 and beyond. So as I mentioned earlier, there's data APIs, there's banking as a service APIs, there's more payment APIs. It's also, if you look at the regulatory framework, Indonesia particularly, there's a lot of openness. There's entirely new rails that are going to be launched and we want to be one of the first movers, put those rails into practice and being able to offer them to the ecosystem. I would say a lot of really good conversations happening behind the scenes with banks, financial institutions, tech companies, even traditional companies. We understand very clearly where the gaps are in the market and what the missing pieces are. And they are focusing on execution at this stage and providing the solutions to the market very soon. Excellent. Jacob, it's been a real pleasure being able to follow the IO Connect story over the past several years. And thanks a lot for joining us today to walk through some of the highlights and lowlights of the company's ultimately successful evolution to emerge as a dominant presence in open banking. Thanks again so much for taking the time out of your business schedule to join us. Absolute pleasure, Alan. Love the podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. We hope our listeners have enjoyed today's episode. As always, please consider sharing any feedback that you have about the Indo Techno podcast with us. Terima kasih. Sampai jumpa lagi.